Amen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm going to give you a disclaimer up front. Uh, you're very important. I, I mean that. I mean that sincerely. Uh, I believe in the omnipotence and, most importantly, the sovereignty of God. I believe that he knows everything, uh, the, the end from the beginning. And because of that, he knew who was going to be here today. He knew that somebody was going to be you. And because of that, he started putting things in place probably weeks and even months ago uh, to prepare for this moment so that he could speak to you and minister to you. And because of that, the devil did his level best to keep you from being here. And some of you fought the devil to get here, but I've also fought the devil to get here. Um, I have not been as sick as I was this week in a long, long time. Don't, don't panic. I didn't have COVID. But what I did have did things to me that usually, because I'm, I'm, I'm usually, no matter what I get, I keep going. In the last two days, I could not get off the couch. Like, I had just no energy. I, it, it, it was bad to the point where I was wondering if I could show up today. Uh, but God is good, and, and his mercy endures forever. And you pray and ask for strength, and, and he gives it to you. So I've been, I've been staying distant from, from you guys. Uh, I'm going to continue to do that, but I also... I'm going to be pretty calm up here today because those of you that have been with me for a long time remember when I used to cough so hard I would pass out. Um, I don't do that anymore, but I can still, I got that Mitchum cough still, and if I start, it'd be hard for me to quit. So I'm going to, I'm going to be, we're going to be laid back bishop this morning if you, if you catch my drift. So uh, I'm going to kind of stay behind the pulpit, and I'm going to kind of stay uh, from getting my temperature raised because I found out that the more hyper I get... Uh, the less uh, ability I have to contra- uh, control this. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you the, uh, the teaching mode this morning. Would that be all right? Hey. So this morning's message is called Church Clothes. In case you haven't uh, noticed the emblem behind me, one of the most common questions we get on social media when somebody connects with us on Facebook or goes to our website and they're planning a visit, one of the first questions they ask us is, what do I need to wear? Clothes. Please, please wear clothes. If you're coming to God's house, please put some clothes on. Put some modest clothes on. Cover yourself up. And other than that, you're going to find everything in this house. Well, you don't find a whole lot of suits and ties anymore, but uh, you'll, if you were a suit and tie, we wouldn't shame you. But uh, uh, the truth is, there's a lot of people that consider, before they visit a church, what it is that they should wear. Amen? And, and have you ever wondered why? I think, I think I've boiled it down to two main reasons why people ask what they should wear. I think it has to do with two things. Number one, how do I want to look in front of God? Like, like what does He expect from me? And to be honest with you, that should be number one. But for most of my experience in church, number two was the main thing, which was how do I want to look in front of people? Because there was a certain image that we wanted to put out to people because we felt like church folks expected us to look a certain way if we was going to come to church. And to be honest with you, I watched people get hurt through the years because they didn't dress right for church. And I didn't say they didn't dress appropriately because I did the research. I read the book. I didn't take the manual from the church catechism. I took the book. And I found out that the book says 
to dress modest. And that's all it said. Didn't say anything about a tie. Didn't say nothing about skirts. It didn't say anything about hair length. Oh, I mean, yeah, I know the woman's glory. We can take anything out of context. As a matter of fact, I could took something out of context this morning. Jacob said, uh, or Enoch said, I go a hunting. I could have went deer hunting this morning and called it spiritual. Don't get no ideas, Ron Hall. He'll run out the door. Unfortunately, most of us keep bringing that mentality to God no matter how long we come to church. And we trade the physical clothes for more personal ones. Okay? Uh, when you have kids, there's a long period of time when things like labels don't matter. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, your kid comes home from school one day and says, Mom, I need Nikes. And you've been buying Payless. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, like you've been going to the mission and buying whatever you could find that fit, and it was perfectly okay, and all of a sudden, if it's not XYZ brand, it's not good enough for your children. Am I the only one? Is it me and my wife the only one that raised them kids? And some of you went through that same thing. So, so, some of you, uh, you grew up and you started making a little bit of money, and, and maybe, uh, m- maybe you came from a, a background like I did where you didn't have a whole lot, and all of a sudden... You want brand names. There's, there's luxury brands that, that you have. And you used to be able to buy whatever it was off the clearance rack at Walmart. But now you want uh, labels because labels matter. However, what I want to preach to you this morning is that as we get older, the labels on our clothes don't make the most difference. It's the labels on our soul that matters the most. And every person in this room, if you can see with spiritual eyes, we are wearing labels. And when I say we're wearing labels, I mean that we're, leave, we're wearing beliefs and thoughts that were labeled on and make us who we are or at least who we want you to believe we are. And, and the worst part of your labels is that they're not labels you would have chosen for yourself. But it's labels that you have allowed other people to put on you. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. Uh, Jesse, Jesse is a man who has eight sons. And those eight sons, uh, are um, several of them are off at war. The youngest son, it, you may have heard of him, his name was David. Good, great, well, I had one person that called that. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, David is at home. He's not at war because he's too young. So he does the very first ever door dash. His daddy calls him out of the sheep field and gives him a cheese and cracker tray and sends him to feed his brothers who are on the battlefield. And when he gets there, he finds out that all of the warriors on Israel's army are hiding from a giant named Goliath. There we go. We got a few more chiming in that time. Now, the thing about David and Goliath is this. What makes everyone else cower in fear awakens a warrior inside of David. What everybody else was running away from calls David to run toward. And that's the story we tell. We tell it in Sunday school to the little children. We tell it in the nursery. 
That's the story we like to tell because the miracle of a teenager bringing down a giant with nothing but a, a sling and a stone makes us feel good about the power of God in our life. Amen? However, a lot of us will miss the fact that David, to get to that field and to get to that battle and to win that war, he had to fight off some labels that people were putting on him. 1 Samuel 17 and 28 says this, But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. This is his brother. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. Listen, this is his older brother. Anybody have an older brother? Anybody got an older brother that talked to him like this? Yeah, he says, go back and do the stuff that don't matter. We'll handle the big boy stuff. That's what he said. He said, you're not cut out for this, David. You're prideful, you're a liar, and you're just here to be nosy. That's what he said. Verse 32, if you jump down to <coughs> verse 32, says, Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Saul says, Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Saul is basically asking David, who do you think you are? Haven't you saw the reality of this situation? And, and, and then that same idea was echoed by Goliath. Once David finally talked Saul into letting him have a shot at it, he gets down into the valley and verse 41 says this, Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at his ruddy-faced boy. And he says, am I a dog? He roared at David that you come at me with a stick and he cursed David by the names of his gods. So, so first his older brother said, what are you doing here? This is out of your league. Then Saul said, you can't possibly win. And then Goliath insulted him and said, who is this little stick who wants to pick a fight with me? Now I don't know if you'd admit it this morning or not, but some of us would have quit by now. That would have been enough insults. Some of us would have took our sling and went home. Somebody say amen if I'm preaching good. And see, that many labels being put on you by other people would have discouraged us to the point that we wouldn't even try anymore. And sometimes the reason this happens and the reason I want to preach this message is because of this. Sometimes what people say about you becomes what you believe about you. And that's the danger of labels. Is... is when you start believing what other people are saying, when people tell you that you're not good enough, when people tell you that you don't have what it takes, those labels can stick to your soul and cripple you if you let it. These people live their whole lives out of balance. Can I help you? I know I'm not shouting and jumping pews this morning, but I'm going to teach you something that's going to help you. When people say things about you that stick to your soul and put labels on you that, that, that you allow to make you think differently about yourself, here's what happens. You live your whole life out of balance by one of two ways. One, they'll, they'll try to please people. You'll be a people pleaser. You'll constantly try to make people accept you because the label says you were unacceptable. 
or you'll live your whole life trying to prove them wrong. And you will die trying. Somebody say amen. And the problem is they never find their only they, they never find their own identity because their only measure of success is proven that the label isn't true. So, th- so they never find out what really makes me happy. The only thing that makes me happy is proving you wrong. I, I don't ever really know what I like because the only thing I like is what you like because I want to please you. And, and so you're going to live out of balance one of two ways. So they become overachievers. They become workaholics. They, they outwork everybody. They, they become uh, very, very OCD. Everything has to be decent and in order. They tidy up their space every single day. And if you move a pencil three-quarters of an inch, they see it and know it. They lose sleep. If, if people are people-pleasers, they won't sleep at night if they think somebody might be upset with them. They will get sick and nauseous and not be able to finish their meals. They'll lose weight because somebody might be <coughs> upset with them. These people never seek their own happiness Because their only pleasure comes from outrunning that label. Or, or you'll take that label and use it as an excuse to do nothing. Because when a teacher tells them that they're dumb, or a brother or a sister calls them stupid, they take that label and attach it to their soul, and they think they're going to fail before they ever take the test. So they don't even try. Uh huh. Somebody called them ugly in third grade and they've never had a relationship and they're 32 years old. And they're scared to, to get involved with anybody because they wore that label. A parent said, why can't you be more like your brother? And now they live their whole life never trying anything that challenges them because the label tells them you are inferior. You'll never be like your brother. You'll never be like your sister. And they put that label on their soul and now they don't even try hard things. Or maybe, maybe there's somebody in the, under the sound of my voice that wears the label of failure. So they constantly give up without a fight. When work gets too hard, they quit their job. When the relationship, when you're afraid the relationship's going the wrong way, you just disappear and ghost them. Uh, they can't keep money because they just assume bad things are supposed to happen to them. If they were an addict, they keep relapsing because they constantly think they can't be delivered. They believe for you, but they don't believe for themselves. So for a lot of people today, the powerful guiding force in their life is not what God says about them, but it's the labels they have chosen to wear. And I came here this morning to tell somebody what God says about them. Because what he says about you is abundantly more important than what they have said about you. There's other people under the sound of my voice that have wore the label of embarrassment. And I know this one to be 100% true because it's me. I'm going to tell you that when, when you wear the label of embarrassment, it causes you not to try anything that might compromise your condition and put you in a condition or a situation to become embarrassed. I don't handle embarrassment well. I never have because I was shamed as a child and I don't handle embarrassment. And when I was little, I would handle it violently. I'll get to that in a few moments. If you wear the label of embarrassment, you you question every move you're about to make and you say things like this. What if I raise my hand and the, I get the question wrong. 
What if I ask somebody to go to the dance with me and they say no? What if the boss tells me I can't have my time off that I need? And let me tell you what the danger of this is. It bleeds over into your spiritual life. Because when you become so pessimistic that you never think good things will happen to you, it makes you believe that God won't answer you either. And you start answering, asking questions like, what if God doesn't do what I say He will? What if God won't answer my prayers? David marched down into that valley with confidence. He was the only one. Everybody else was hiding from Goliath. And David was the only one who had confidence that God would give him the victory. Do you want to know why? Let me show you in 1 Samuel 17. Back to verse 34. But David persisted. Saul said, you can't go down there. You're just a little boy. He's been a warrior since birth. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. Ron Hall thinks he's tough because he's shooting arrows from a tree at a deer. David, little, little, little 17-year-old David grabbing lions by the jaw and beating it to death with his bare hands. That's a man, Ron Hall. That's a man. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Can I tell you why he had confidence and nobody else did? Because of that last statement. When you get your God-given identity right, victory comes natural to you. When you know who you are in Christ, victory is an outcome of who you believe you are. It doesn't matter how talented David was at throwing rocks. Do you understand that? Do you understand that he didn't have to have the aim right because he knew who was guiding the rock? He doesn't have to be, he didn't have to outmatch. I mean, he would have been stupid. Let's be, let's just, let's get out of Bible Sunday school world and get into reality. He would have been stupid to take on this giant in his own strength. That's why everybody else was hiding from Goliath. But he knew he wasn't the one responsible for bringing the giant down. When you know who you are, when you get your God given identity right you know addiction shouldn't be able to hold you you know lust shouldn't be able to hold you you know a lion spirit shouldn't be able to hold you because of who you are and so when you say things like I can't you're right you can't but if you know whose you are you know he can and through you he can do anything that's the problem with labels is when you start taking on what other people have said about you and attaching it to your soul and start believing it about you, you believe what they said instead of what he said. Is this helping anybody? Now, I don't watch them, but there's these shows that they do every year like the Oscars and the Emmys. I don't care nothing about that because I don't watch the stuff. I don't know who the people are. But one thing I do know is they have this thing called a red carpet. And, and all these actors and uh, celebrities, they get on this red carpet, and they always ask them a question. And the question they ask is, who are you wearing? And what they actually mean is this. What designer made your dress? Or what designer made your suit? So I want to ask you this morning, who are you wearing? Who, who is it that you wore in here this morning? Because you have either let God put his identity and his label on you, or you've let some other folks put some stuff on you. 
And, and if you don't come to grips with who it is that has formed you and made you and created you and gave purpose to you, if you don't ever realize that that person was God and not who spoke into you, you're going to always mislabel yourself. Somebody say amen. Now I'm going to give you some, I'm going to try not to get too deep because I, I listen, I'm a word nerd. And, and, and I'm also a nerd when the word starts matching up with science. So I'm going to try not to get too deep and bore you to death. But man, some of this stuff was so good. I did a lot of study for this sermon. And one of the things I found out was studies show us that the average person has 60,000 thoughts a day. Now, now ladies, you didn't think your husband had four. But studies show... Studies show we have 60,000 thoughts a day. You know the problem with that? It also showed that 80% of them are negative. Eight out of ten. 80% of your thoughts are negative. And what that means is once you put a label on yourself because of what somebody said about you, it is really difficult to just pull that label off because you're surrounded with negative thoughts. And once you have believed a lie, it's easy to just keep believing more lies. Because your thoughts are so prone to wander into negativity. You're swimming in a sea of negative thoughts and attitudes and opinions about yourself. Which means you're going to have to figure out, number one, why did I start believing that about myself? Where did that label come from? I, I'm going to do some self-discovery here this morning. Would it be okay? Hey, li listen, you, you, have to, you have to get to the root of this thing and figure it out. And I know some of you are older than me, some of you are about my age, and some of you are younger than me. It doesn't matter how many years you spend on this planet. We all carry labels, and most of them came from when we were we little. And, and you have to trace that back and say, why do I believe this about myself? If you look in the mirror and all you ever see is ugly staring back at you, where did you get that from? Where did that thought come from? If it doesn't matter how much weight you lose, you can't ever seem to feel good about yourself in your own skin, where did that thought come from? Where did that label come from? Because I'm going to tell you, most of the time, apparently at least 80% uh, of the time, it didn't come from your father who created you. The Bible says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. How often do you look in the mirror when you step out of the bathroom and say, I am wonderfully made? I mean, is that your first thought when you get out of the shower? Check it out, Jesus. It's wonderfully made. Is that your first thought? I got to get a drink on that. So you got to think about where did that thought come from, and who put that label on me? And what you're going to discover is that you've lived with thoughts your whole life that you believed were yours, but they were actually labels put on you by other people. Psychologists tell us that our self-esteem is mostly formed by the people we esteem the most. Uh, okay, what does that mean, Pastor? That means the people that you look up to have a whole lot of value in your eyes what they think about you. In other words, if you go to Walmart and a stranger cusses you out in the parking lot, 
it won't affect you 10 years later. But if your spouse uses those same words against you, it'll change the way you feel. It'll change the way you act. Because you have put value into them, and what they think about you matters. Somebody say amen. And David, in our story, was no different. Listen, do you realize how easy it would have been for David to accept those labels? His brother tried to put a label on him. Saul tried to put a label on him. Goliath tried to put a label on him. And it would have been easy for David to do it, especially if you back up and read the story of how he got to the battlefield to start with. Because his daddy had already put labels on him. Samuel shows up at Jesse's house before the battle in 1 Samuel 17. Jess, uh, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and says, I'm here to anoint the new king. One of your sons is the new king. God sent me here to anoint him. Jesse calls in seven of his eight sons. And they all pass in front of Samuel. Not once, but twice. And Samuel says, not him, not him, nope, not this one, not that one. Nope. And they just keep passing through. And Samuel, after the second pass through, says, Is these all the boys you got? Jesse says, I got another one, but he's out in this. It can't be him. He had passed seven boys through two times. And both times, says, it can't be that one. And I don't know why. It, the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us whether it was because he was too young or whether he was too inexperienced or he was too weak, or he was too red-headed. We don't know why David wasn't included, but he had a label that was being put on him by his daddy. And listen, David could have worn his father's rejection until it turned into a weakness, because that's what a lot of us do. We take what other people say about us and label us, and we turn that thing into a weakness. As a matter of fact, I, I read some studies. Again, I'm going to try not to get too nerdy on you. But I read complete studies that show there are three primary negative effects of trauma on a person's life. Three. Are you ready for this? When negative trauma happens to your life, one of three things happen. Number one, catastrophizing. That means you assume the worst possible thing will happen at any given time. Because something happened to you uh, as traumatic uh, early on, now you assume everything that's going to happen is wrong. Uh, people do this because they went through something terrible and the brain never fully relaxes from the trauma. God bless you if you marry one of these people. Because the minute you're 10 minutes late, they think you left them. The moment the, the moment the electricity goes out, they assume you're going to freeze to death. Do you know anybody like this? Don't raise your hand, and especially don't point at them if you're sitting next to them. But do you, have you ever been around one of these people that they jump to the worst logical conclusion no matter what happens? If, if they get a hangnail, it's leukemia. If one of their children gets the sniffles, they have to be put in a bubble immediately. Call in the National Guard because they're surely going to die. I mean, it's, they catastrophize everything. Well, uh, their brain has never relaxed from the trauma that happened. Number two, trying to predict what other people are thinking. Aren't these people fun at a party? That, 
They went through trauma, and now they have a survival technique in their brain that is developed so that they can, they try to predict what you're thinking so they don't ever upset you. So they're always trying to gauge the level of the room because they're trying to please you and keep you happy so that you don't get offended or upset and they wear themselves out. Or number three, we magnify the negative and minimize the positive. If you never expect anything good to happen, you won't be let down when it doesn't. These are the three negative effects of trauma. And it's not, it's not a mood. It's not an emotion. It, it, it's neurological. It affects the brain. I, I'm trying to tell you this because it's not something that you can just shake out of. Okay? You need a healing. You need a supernatural touch from a divine maker who did not label you what they labeled you. And when you accept this thing, it's not as easy as just pulling this Nike off of this, this uh, jacket. It, you have to go to the maker. Listen, if the warranty uh, on your refrigerator says you can't fix this yourself, you got to call a repair technician because they're trained, you need to take this model back to the originer, originator and, and, and let him touch you sometimes because some of what you have done to yourself has damaged you to the point where you can't just straighten up. You need a touch from the hand of the maker who labeled you what he wanted you to be, and you may have made some errors along the way and accepted some labels on you that has messed up the way you think, but there's nothing too big for God. And he is able. Somebody say he's able. Okay. So, I'm, I, again, I'm going to try not to nerd out on you, but there is a primary emotion that arises out of trauma. Okay? There's one primary emotion that causes trauma to become uh, devastating. And that emotion is shame. And the manual gives you instructions on how to handle shame. Do you believe me? That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, say weight, and sin, say sin. Do you see that there is an and between weight and sin? Do you see that? That's not a trick question. That means weights and sins are different. They're not the same thing. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that doth so easily beset us or ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross, despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to pay attention especially to that second verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher 
of our faith. The author. Say the pen is in his hand. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Who, by the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And how did he do it? By despising the shame. I want you to notice that the Bible points out how Jesus, in his worst hour, had to battle one emotion above all the other ones. Shame. Jesus was about to take on the shame of the whole world. And he had to battle shame and look what the Bible says. He despised it. And in this room you find all different kinds of people. You, listen, listen, we're a super diverse crowd in here. Okay, we, There's different sizes of people. Different hair colors. Some used to be hair colors that ain't that hair color anymore. There's different backgrounds, different skin colors, different nationalities. We got all different. We are a super diverse crowd in this room this morning. And we all come up from different places. But there's one thing that we've all shared unilaterally. We all know what it feels like to experience shame. Every person in this room resonates with it when I say shame. But what exactly is shame? Well, I'm glad you asked. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. The consciousness, which means you can do wrong and foolish behavior and not be conscious that you're doing it. But when you become conscious that you did it, that's when shame sets in. So you can go through the motions and be doing wrong and sinful and foolish things and not feel any shame. Have you ever wondered, don't raise your hand and don't point at them. Don't roll your eyes at them. But have you ever looked at somebody and been like, they are such a fool. Have you ever looked at them and thought, why can't you see the mess you're creating for yourself? Because you're ashamed of what they're doing. And you can't figure out why they're not. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The reason is they haven't came conscious yet of what they have done. You can do foolish and wrong things but not be conscious that you're doing it. You can, but, but, but once you become conscious of it, do you see what it says? You become hurt on the inside. In other words, you feel shame in your guts. Like, like when, when shame sits in, you... you Listen, you can't preach shame on people. We tried it for years in the holiness church. We tried to shame people from the pulpit. Dress right, act right, talk right, live right, do right, be right. We tried to shame them into doing it. You know, this is what the Lord wants from you. And all of it was true, but you can't put shame on people because they have to feel it in their own stomach. They have to get to the point where... They're not listening to the words that are coming out of your mouth, but they feel it on the inside of themselves. And anybody that's in this room knows I'm telling the truth because it's happened to you, right? Your mom and dad told you, don't do that, that's wrong, and you did it anyway, but you didn't feel it was wrong until you felt it. And then once you got it in your gut, and some of you didn't realize it was wrong until it was payback time, and your own baby started doing it to some of you was like, mom and dad don't know what they're talking about. And then all of a sudden, your baby started showing up doing the same foolish mess you was. You was like, where did you get that from? Oh, that's right. I know where you got that from. That is me in there. Uh-huh. 
Shame has been called by uh, neurological sciences as the most powerful emotion. Shame. Can you believe it? It's not love. It's not fear. It's shame. Shame, and let me tell you why. When your body experiences shame, something toxic takes place. Now, some of you that's in the medical field uh, are going to enjoy this because uh, we're going to get nerdy. When the body experiences shame, something toxic takes place in your brain. Our brains are injured by chronically being shamed by people. Do you realize that when somebody shames you over and over and over again, or you shame someone over and over and over again, you're not just heaping on them your opinion. You're you're actually damaging their brain. And it's something called the atomic... autonomic nervous system. And it's made up of two different nervous systems. I'm not going to get too deep into this. But the one that I want to talk about is called the sympathetic nervous system. And here's the sympathetic nervous system is where your excitement comes from. Okay? Is everybody with me? Are you tracking me? The sympathetic nervous system is where you, and it actually controls the organs of the body. And the reason it does this is because of this. When faced with a situation where your body has to react without your brain knowing what to do, the sympathetic nervous system causes your body to do things like get out of the way of a falling piano. You don't have time to think, oh, I probably should take four steps to the left. No, you just got to react. If your car starts sliding on the ice, you can't always think through. You got to just react. That's the sympathetic nervous system kicking in, and 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 your body is taking over when your brain's not fully engaged. Are you with me? When shame is introduced to the body, over and over and over, it actually causes your sympathetic nervous system to kick in, and you have three responses: flight, fight, or or or. Uh, freeze. Those are the three responses that you have when faced with shame. Your body, your brain reacts like it's in physical danger. All all my parents, I love you. I'm one of you. But I wish I would have known this when my babies was little. I wish I'd known this when your babies was little. If you're a teacher, this is valuable information to you. Not that you're allowed to say anything negative to little Johnny anymore anyway. But when you say something like shame to someone that shames them, their brain goes into flight, fight, or freeze mode. Flight, when when, when a child is is put, is heaped shame upon them, and they have the flight response, uh, they don't run away. They try to shrink right where they are. They try to become invisible. They never find their voice. They don't know what makes them happy because their only joy in life is to keep you from shaming them. So they, they, they literally try to hunch over. If you've ever seen anybody that doesn't stand up straight, and they don't have back problems, it's usually because they're trying to, they don't want to be noticed. In comparison to fight response, is the one I developed. Uh, verbal and behavioral aggression by an embarrassed person. You get ashamed, you take it out on somebody, usually in a violent manner. And then the freeze response is the most devastating of all because that's when a child literally 
lets their mind go to another place because of the terrible things that are being done to their body. It's brain damage. Labels that other people put on us. And we literally have brain damage. And nobody talks about this in church. Have you ever heard a sermon like this? I haven't. We don't talk about this in church. It's just always read your Bible and pray and come to church and everything's going to be all right. And that's true. His supernatural power is what it's going to take to deliver you. But at least we need to know what we're fighting. Because everything's not spiritual. Some things are emotional. A lot of things are mental. And when we take on these labels that people put on us and we believe them about ourselves, I'm going to tell you something about your prayer life. You will never pray yourself out of what you think about yourself. Because if you're, you may be uttering words and asking God to deliver you, but if you don't ever think you can really be delivered, God's not going to override your opinion of you. He loves you with a supernatural kind of love. But if you're asking God to deliver you, but the Bible says your, your prayer life's never going to rise above your faith life. And you can't believe about you what you can't envision about you. And many of us have done this for years. We have prayed for God to do things in our life, but we didn't really believe He would do it. And we knew we were supposed to ask him, and we knew that he could do it, but we just didn't believe he would. Is this helping anybody? And because shame enacts this fight, flight, or freeze emotion, people that have, have been uh, traumatized by shame walk around 24-7 with their emotions turned all the way up to 10. And your body was not designed to handle that kind of stress. So what do we do? We self-medicate. What do we do to handle it? Because our emotions are all the way up and we know we're not right and we know we're not normal and we can't talk to nobody. Why? Because we're ashamed. And I can't tell you how I feel because if I tell you how I feel, I'm ashamed about how I feel. So we walk around with our emotions all the way up to 10 and so we start self-medicating, whether it's in a bottle, whether it's pills, whether it's a shot, whether it's porn, whether it's lust, whatever it is, we self-medicate. And then what? More shame. Because now we're ashamed of the thing that we're doing to cover up the shame that we're afraid to expose. And the church has never been a hospital where people felt good about coming in and exposing themselves and being vulnerable. We felt like we had to be perfect and phony. And nobody wanted to come to church and tell somebody, I'm a porn addict. They wanted to come to church and say, I've cheated on my wife for four years. I need deliverance. We didn't want to talk about that. So we just keep heaping more shame on ourselves and the labels other people put on us, then we start slapping labels. Nobody's ever pointing us to the one that has the deliverance that we need. And we just keep saying prayers. And did, did, did anybody grow up watching... Some of y'all are older than me, so you won't get it. And some of you are younger men, you won't get it. But if you're in my age group, anybody remember Friday night, uh, Saturday night wrestling? Anybody remember when Hulk Hogan first came out? And it was always, say your prayers and take your vitamins, kids. I felt like that with church. I felt like Hulk Hogan should have been up behind the pulpit. Say your prayers and come to church, kids. And that's all it takes, but it takes more than that because I've watched people suffer in silence year after year, scared to death that if they ever came to church and became real and honest and vulnerable, nobody won't have anything to do with them. 
So I'm going to give you, I know I've, been, I know I've went a long time, but um, I apologize in advance. I'm going to give you three secrets about shame that nobody ever says out loud, okay? Number one, shame is a homemade outfit. You usually don't make it for yourself, but you put it on and then refuse to take it off. It got quiet in here real quick. You verbally abuse yourself. Because of labels of other people. Other people made the labels. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your dad. Maybe it was an older brother or sister. Maybe it was a girlfriend that broke up with you. A boyfriend that neglected you. Whatever. But they put a label on you and you put it on. And now you refuse to take it off. What I mean by that, you keep repeating it over to yourself. You keep telling yourself, I've messed up too bad. I went too far. I did too much. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I, didn't, I don't have enough money. I, I'll never be good enough. You keep repeating these things to yourself. And you know what shocks me about this? You wouldn't let nobody else say it about you. You wouldn't let nobody, you would not let somebody stand bold-faced to you and tell you you're ugly, but you tell it to yourself all the time. You wouldn't, listen, all you sisters that's got homegirls with you, you got BFFs. Are you going to stand there flat-footed and let somebody come up to your BFF and look at her in the face and say, you are so ugly. You're going to slap the taste out of somebody's mouth right now, aren't you? Why? Because you're not going to let somebody talk about your friend like that. Well, I'm going to give you a little hint. You're my friend. Quit talking to my friend like that. Stop talking to my friend the way you talk to yourself. You're my friend, and I don't want to hear you talk about yourself like that. Because that's what we do. It, 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 we, we, we put it on our... We don't put it on us, but we, we keep it on. Number two, shame is a straitjacket that we put on other people. When you look at a kid and say, shame on you, you just wrap that kid in something. Somebody at church makes a mistake, and the elders, instead of restoring those that have fallen, all we got to do is bring them up in front of the church and turn them out and shame them. Shame on you. It's a straitjacket you're putting on other people. Number three, shame is a hand-me-down problem that you borrow from the ones who own it. Now, little kids like to play dress-up, right? They get mommy and daddy's clothes and they play dress-up. Yeah, well, we do the same thing when we come to church. That's why I called this message church clothes. Because some of us play dress-up too. We put other folks' shame on and hide it like it don't exist. There's addiction in the family. And they stand up and testify about how God delivered them, and then they relapse. And the whole family joins the CIA. Good preaching, preacher. I mean, the, some of y'all are so good at keeping family secrets, you all ought to be in the FBI. Because as soon as something bad happens, y'all all huddle together and say, shh, don't nobody say nothing. Don't nobody say nothing. Why? Because why do you do that? Why do you do that? Oh, we're protecting them. No, you're not. You're protecting you. You're protecting you because you feel ashamed for them. 
Because if you really wanted to help them, you'd get some prayer warriors involved in the situation. If you really believed what this book says about how we're supposed to bring people to the altar and let the elders of the church anoint them with oil and pray over, if you really believe that help comes from the Lord who gives us every good and perfect gift, if you really believe that, you'd get some prayer warriors invested in that child's life. you got to tell everybody. I implore you not to tell everybody. Can I beg you to keep it off the faith? face page (laughs) but you do need a circle of prayer warriors that you depend on that you can reach out to and get people that you know can rattle the cage of heaven and 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 expect God to move on their behalf amen parents are notorious for feeling shame because of the decisions their kids made wives who live with an abusive husband don't want to talk about it because she's ashamed of what's going on to her behind closed doors. Do you see what I'm talking about? It's a hand-me-down. It it didn't belong to you. If he's beating you, you didn't do it. But you wear it because it's a hand-me-down problem. Pastors feel shame sometimes because of something that happens to their church member. And and I've I've been guilty of this. Something happened in my church. Something happened to somebody in my church. It didn't have nothing to do with me. I wasn't there. I wouldn't have made that choice. I wouldn't have made that decision. But I have felt that shame. Because somehow I'm supposed to be so spiritual that all of you live right. I can't even keep me straight. All of our emotions were given to us by God to serve a purpose. And when those emotions get out of whack or out of balance, that's when we have a problem. Let me me give you an example of this. And then I'm going to move on to the last stage before I let you go. When you experience an emotion, God gave you your emotions. Amen? And when you experience an emotion, it's a signal to your body that you need to do something. For instance, somebody say guilt. Now say guilt is not shame. Do you want to know what the difference? Guilt says I did something wrong. God gives you guilt because he wants you to do something about what you did. You did something wrong, so guilt says, I need to apologize. I hurt you, I need to say I'm sorry. I hurt God, I need to repent and say I'm sorry. Shame doesn't say I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. That's the difference. That's the difference. And God doesn't give shame. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Do you see the difference? One comes from heaven. The other comes from another place. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Any volunteers? I didn't think so. Because that'd be the first thing that you'd feel. First you'd feel the draft, then you'd feel the shame. <laughs> he put them in the garden. They had no clothes. He didn't, they, he didn't build no Walmart. There wasn't no Coles, no Macy's. Because they were naked, but they felt no shame. And as soon as they ate the fruit, as soon as they sinned, the first thing they did was wrap themselves in clothes. Why? Because shame separates you from God. Shame makes you afraid to stand in the presence of your Father who loves you. And and that's why the devil loves to heap shame on you. Because shame makes you want to hide 
from God. And the devil knows this. If he can make you feel ashamed, you'll do to yourself what he couldn't do to you. Because the book of Romans tells me this. If, if you want to know how, you're feel, how God feels about you, Romans 8 and 38 says, I'm convinced that, neither, that nothing can separate me from the God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons, fears today or worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. But shame will make you feel like God doesn't love you anymore. They hid from God because shame causes us to hide and isolate. First away from God, then away from the people who want to help us. And here's the problem. You don't realize how heavy this gets. What did Hebrews say? Hebrews 12 and 2. Let us lay aside every weight and sin. So let me deal with the sin. Quit. Stop. Stop sinning. thought I might get an amen in a hole in this church. You bunch of backslidden, stiff-necked sinners. Quit. Here's the thing about sin. Most of you know when you're sinning. I don't have to preach a whole lot about sin because you're already preaching to yourself about it. You kind of know when you're sinning, you know you're as wrong as two left shoes, and you're just doing it anyway. I really don't have to preach about it. I mean, I do, because it's in the Word, so we expose it. But most of the time, the sins, you know them. But it's the weights. It's the weights that get us in trouble. Uh, I want to invite somebody to come up here that's going to help me this morning. This is Jada. Come on up here, Miss Jada, and just, just kind of stand right here with your, with your wonderful smile. Oh, watch them heels coming up here. This, Jade, everybody, this is Jada. Jada, this is everybody. Now, now the reason I invited Jada up here is because she's young and athletic. She is one of the uh, coaches for the track and field team at Bethany College. Yeah, so she knows a thing or two about running races. And teaching other people how to run races. She's going to help teach you this morning about running a race. She's, uh, she's on loan to us. Uh, she, she came up here to, to work at Bethany, but she's originally from one of our uh, other churches in Princeton, West Virginia. Good friends of ours. And, and her family is from, what, the Bahamas? Yeah. She, she's, she's, yeah. And her, her older brother, Michael, he's actually... A wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts. So, that was so weak because they're Steeler fans. And I, I really wish he still had Peyton Manning throwing the ball to him out there, but instead of what they got going on right now, but that's another sermon for another time. Uh, it's pretty sorry up there right now, but we ain't blame Michael, okay? Uh, but, but she comes from a family of athletes. She's athletic herself, and she knows how to talk about running the race. And, and what Hebrews 12 and 2 says is that you need to lay aside every weight and sin that, that weighs you down so you can run the race. And the thing about Jade is not only is she young and athletic and pretty and smart and comes from a, a, a great lineage, she's also full of the Holy Ghost and loves Jesus. So... Yeah. 
Miss Jessica, if you want to come and help me. If you want to step right here in the middle, girl. There we go. Miss Jessica's going to be my assistant this morning. She's going to... When you're born, everybody in this room, when you're born, you get a backpack. You didn't know that, did you? Heaven gives you a backpack. Now, pay no attention to the fact that it looks like she's about to join the army. Uh, I needed a good, sturdy backpack for this illustration, so I bought the best one I have. I don't know if you can hold that or not. You might want to just bend over and pick it up for a few minutes because they get heavy. So, so this backpack that you get in life is to collect all of life's experiences in it. And how many of you know that the older you get, seems like the heavier life gets? You, you ever wondered why? Well, it's because you've, you've got this backpack when you was born, and all through life you just get more and more weights put in. So you get a weight because of the shame you feel about your parent abandoning you. And then you get another weight because you were in a toxic relationship you spent way too much time in. Then you get another one because your kid got suspended from school and you parents blame yourselves for everything your children do. And then you get another one because you went through the divorce. And then you get another one for the bankruptcy. And then you get some more shame, the weight of shame put on you because of the fact that you got fired yesterday. Oh, and then, this is fun, then you get married, and you get all their weights put in there too, because when, when two flesh become one, yeah, baby, you get to share all that now. Now, then you, then you started a ministry, but you got too busy to take care of it and you let the ministry go even though you told God you'd do anything and, and then and then you got, in a, you got in a relationship with a fine young man that got a six pack and baby blue eyes but don't love Jesus and it ain't wrong but it's a weight because sins and weights aren't the same. And, and, and it's, not, it's not heaven or hell, but it's, it's heavy. And, and the problem is, Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who had become Christians. Which means they were going to church. Which means you can go to church and run this race. And not go to hell when you die. But you're running the race. Now, you're a track and field coach. Would you recommend this attire for the cross-country meets? You'd look like a fool. Yeah, especially, well, how about this spiritual race? When you come to a church like Promise of Victory and Pastor Amanda's up here saying, raise your hands for Jesus. Yeah, it's a little hard like that, isn't it? Like, yeah, see, you can do it, but it's heavier than it needs to be, right? You can still, she's strong, she's athletic. If she needs to, she can hoist that up. But it's a whole lot heavier than it needs to be. And what about we start thinking about making me want to jump, 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 jump. She could probably do that. But it's a whole lot heavier than it needs to be. And it's not sin. But it's stupid. It's heavier than it needs to be. And it's a hindrance to you running your race. So at some point, you got to shed this weight. Get rid of it. Go ahead. Give the Lord a hand clap. Thank you, ladies. You can just leave that right there because I'm going to use it. 
I'll help you with that. Oh, boy, that is heavy, ain't it? Oh, boy. The context of the scriptures is this. You weren't designed to carry this. Some of you can because you're tough. Some of you can because it's all you're used to. This is the, I call this the Mitchum backpack. Because I was just given this by Rife and Aunt Jean Mitchum just when I was a kid. And I've just been, I've just been toiling through life all my life. Does this sound like anybody else's witness or just, just me and my kids? I mean, this is just, this the burden my family bears. This is just who we are. And we just, we keep these family secrets and we keep this stuff under the rug and we don't deal with it. And this is just the way we are. Does anybody relate to that? And we just, but at some point the Bible says you got to shed that mess because you're trying to run a race and it's not sinful, but it's stupid for you to try to carry that stuff when you don't have to. And by the way, you look like a fool trying to act like this thing isn't on you. Open the word today. We're going to talk about how to be a perfect Christian because I've got a perfect word from the perfect preacher that I am. And nobody pay attention to the fact that I'm 50 pounds heavier than I used to be. I've got all this weight on me. Because I, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, I was putting stuff in my backpack that didn't need to be there. Now I'm just going to carry them up to the pulpit and act like everything's okay. Do you hear that? That's the sound that it ought to make every time you come to the altar. You ought to be throwing them weights down. You have to acknowledge that you've got some stuff on you. You have to acknowledge that there is some stuff that you picked up that you did not need. Listen to what the Bible says. Looking unto Jesus... We got, three, we got three ways we're going to get rid of the weight. Number one, looking unto Jesus. Watch what you're watching. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Not your circumstances. Not your family dysfunction. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because what's happening to you should not be happening in you. Re remember, we have this thing called free will. Which means you get to decide what you focus on. God is omnipresent. He's always there, but you have to make it a point to see Him in the middle of your storms. Number two, listen to what it says. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you are alive and breathing, do this. God's not finished writing your story yet. Do you hear this preacher this morning? It doesn't matter what you went through. It doesn't matter what's been in that pack. It doesn't matter what you have faced. God's not finished writing your story yet. First, uh, Philippians 1 and 6 says, I am certain that the God who started a good work in you will continue that work in you until he has finished it. In other words, God started something and God is faithful that he's going to complete something. He started a work in you. He started a work in you. You might have messed it up. You might have become an addict. You might have relapsed. You may have done a lot of stupid things in your life. You may have uh, uh, made another mistake after another mistake after another mistake. But that doesn't mean you've got to start feeling that bag up again, it means you can go back to him, repent, and realize that the pen is in his hand. 
He's the author. That means the pen is in his hand. This is why we got to start being honest about our flaws. The church has been so phony. Never realizing we're not the one writing the story to start with. And number three, he says, the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So you have to watch what you're watching. Believe Jesus did it all when he did it all. And number three, don't wear it if it doesn't match where you're going. I look ridiculous trying to preach with this on because it doesn't match where I'm going. Now, if I was trying to fix up Ron Hall's busted up race car, this is exactly what I need to wear. But it looks ridiculous for where I'm going on a Sunday morning. There's a time and a place for this. There's, this is a useful tool, but not for where I'm going. Because where I'm going is to bring the gospel from the pulpit. This is not conducive to me. It's not wrong. It's just dumb. It's unnecessary. It doesn't fit where I'm going. That's why you can't let other people's labels tell you who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be in life because it may not fit where you're going. I know daddy was an engineer. Mama was a nurse. That doesn't mean you have to be. It doesn't fit necessarily where you're going. Listen to what Jesus, listen to what the Bible says. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What in the world is joyful about the cross? The joy of the cross, for real? What is joyful about the cross? He was mocked by people he was trying to help. He was lied on. He was abused. He was wounded. He was betrayed by his own friends. He suffered a humiliating, painful, torturous death. And somehow he considered that joy because he knew it was the only way to get him to where he was going. And where you're going is not always an enjoyable place to be or an enjoyable trip to get there. Don't wear it if it's not going to help you get where you're going. The pain shouldn't be your focus. The wounds shouldn't be what you focus on. The neglect and the despair and the heartache and the misery and the abuse and the neglect and all that label that they put on you. It's not where you're going. He's still holding a pen in his hand. He's not finished your story yet. I know there's a lot of you, like me, who've been in church a long time. And you consider yourself pretty righteous. Pretty holy. In other words, I don't break God's laws, not intentionally. And when I do, I feel like I'm pretty quick to repent 
and ask him to forgive me. I don't call myself a sinner because I live by his stature. I live to please him. And I have made mistakes and I'll continue to make mistakes. But when I do, I'm pretty quick to ask him to forgive me. But this, this is my problem. It's not the sin. It's the weights. It's the stuff I carry that I don't need. It's the stuff I'm trying to run a race with that's causing me to be weighted down. And I don't know what's in your bag. It might be a relationship you don't need to be in. It might be a a job that you need to get rid of. It it might be a, a commitment that you made that you went back on and now you feel guilty about even coming to church because you said you was going to do something and then you backed out of it and maybe you've done some things and damaged some relationships along the way and maybe not sinned against people but now there's hard feelings and I don't know what's in your bag but can I implore you to get rid of it this morning you got to shed this shame you got to get rid of this thing you have no idea what it feels like to let that go and I may not have been wrong I may not have been separated from God but I can just worship better now I'm freer now and that's what he wants for you if you're here this morning and you got a bag you need to empty I implore you bring it to the Lord bring it to Make an, make an altar at your seat. I, I don't care how, you, but you need somebody under the sound of my voice has got a bag that needs emptied in this room. Bring it up to this altar this morning. Make an altar at your seat. I don't care how you do it, but would you come? It's not where you're heading. The things you've been carrying around, they're not, they're not going to help you get to where you're going. God's got a plan for you. He's got a, he's got a destination for you. He's got a purpose for you. <coughs> and every weight that you're carrying is making it harder for you to get there.